previously on With Great Power. Marvel had zero value. No one wanted Marvel. They had just emerged out of bankruptcy. They had no cash. Spider-Man was ace in the hall. Sony had never had that kind of a success before, but nobody had. I mean, it was like the biggest opening of all time for a very long time. So, you know, the funny thing is, uh, we were so successful that Ike and Avi sued us. So it was very contentious. He developed a fire in his belly of hatred. I think they were willing to do what they needed to do in order to claw more of it back. In 2003, a young Hollywood executive named David Maisel flew to Florida for an important meeting at a well-known resort. It was over lunch at the Mar-a-Lago Country Club. I remember Donald Trump came by the table <laughs> to say hi to Ike, and Ike introduced me to Mr. Trump at the time. And I remember him, uh, Ike, saying I was from Hollywood. And I think this was right before Apprentice started in 2004, and Donald saying something about his upcoming television show. But David wasn't there to rub shoulders with the future reality TV star turned president. He was there to share an ambitious idea with Ike Perlmutter, a member of the Mar-a-Lago Country Club and the head of Marvel. What was your impression of Ike Perlmutter the first time you met him? Uh, very positive, actually. Um, I respected his directness and his intelligence and his frankness. Ike was still angry in the aftermath of the Spider-Man movie. He felt Sony received too much credit and too much money for a film based on Marvel's character. And he felt that Marvel had gotten screwed. For David, Ike's anger was an opportunity. David grew up doing theater and reading comics, but he ended up going the business route. He earned an MBA from Harvard and worked at companies including Disney. He dreamed of one day running his own movie studio and thought Marvel, which was still pursuing licensing deals in the wake of Spider-Man's success, could be his vehicle. So he made a pitch to Ike. I pitched him the idea of Marvel financing its own movies. And because of that, having full green light authority and scheduling authority, having full financial upside, and having full creative control. The pitch was simple. If Marvel made its own films, it could keep all the profits, unlike what happened with Spider-Man. And it could produce its films with an eye toward maximizing toy sales, which was still Ike's favorite way to make money. Did you think you had a good shot of succeeding in this pitch? It's a long time ago, but I think overall, I had a bit of a fortunate delusion <laughs> in thinking that things would work out if I knew how wild this idea was and how many hurdles would have to be overcome. The amount of hurdles was tremendous, but I felt very passionate about this potential. The idea of a company like Marvel making its own movies may seem obvious now, but in 2003, it was unheard of. Back then, companies that produced comics or books or toys always licensed their products to Hollywood studios, and those studios made the films. That's just the way it was done. It just seemed insane to us at the time. This is John Turitzen, Marvel's longtime top lawyer and a close advisor to Ike. And why did it seem insane? Because producing a movie is such a huge project. Producing movies is something that movie studios do. And we were a 
small toy company, a licensing company. We were a nothing company. So the idea that we could actually make movies was an astounding idea and somewhat unbelievable to us. But Ike was intrigued. He gave David a job and a mission, to raise the funds to make it happen. After all, producing movies cost hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions that Marvel did not have. Luckily for David, it was the mid-2000s, a few years before the financial collapse. Wall Street was booming, and banks were loaning money to practically anyone who asked. At the time, I'd say the environment was very fortunate. Um, A lot of loans were made that perhaps should not have been made. Probably our loan should not have been made. Merrill Lynch agreed to loan Marvel $525 million to make movies. This was a critical moment for Marvel Studios and Hollywood. For the first time ever, a small comic book publisher with no movie-making track record had the money to produce its own films. Coming up, what it took for Marvel to turn this crazy idea into reality. From the journal, this is With Great Power, The Rise of Superhero Cinema. I'm Ben Fritz. This is episode two, Some Assembly Required. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. With more than half a billion dollars in hand, Marvel jumped into the business of movie making. The first question was, which superhero to start with? They didn't have the film rights to their most famous characters, like Spider-Man and X-Men. Those were still licensed to other studios. The characters they did control were decidedly B-list, maybe even C-list. So there wasn't an obvious choice. And we were trying to decide which character to base the first movie upon. We did a focus group with kids, and we described the characters to them. We showed them images of the characters. We asked them what their thoughts were about the characters, and we took their opinions throughout the day. John Turitsin said the goal of the focus group was to ensure that whichever movie Marvel made first would essentially be a good toy advertisement. Our focus was on selling toys. We never viewed the movie studio itself as a way that we were 
realistically it's going to generate profits. We thought we would use the movies as a vehicle to enhance the attraction and popularity of characters. At the end of the day, after we described Iron Man to the focus group kids and said he could shoot things out of his hand and he could fly and he had these powers, they loved Iron Man. Somebody suggested to me that they thought, um, somebody who worked at Marvel previously, that, that some kids thought that Iron Man was like a robot, that it sort of was like a Transformers kind of a thing. And that, that was part of the appeal. That's right. I mean, I think to, to the kids in the focus group, they thought Iron Man was great. Iron Man was like a robot. It, was, it had all the attributes and attraction of a robot character. The kids had spoken. Marvel decided to make an Iron Man movie. It was risky. He wasn't a household name like Spider-Man or Superman. Marvel also greenlit The Incredible Hulk, its most famous property that wasn't licensed to another studio. The new Marvel Studios set up shop in a decidedly non-glitzy space above a Mercedes-Benz dealership in Beverly Hills. The executives there focused on making the movies. Meanwhile, Ike Perlmutter stayed behind in New York where he kept a close eye on budgets. Now that Marvel was making its own movies, every dollar it spent was potentially a dollar less in profit. Ike Perlmutter was very hard on costs. He was a guy that had made his money by dealing with companies that had slid into bankruptcy or into financial distress. So when Ike began focusing on making movies, he brought that mindset over to the movie studio and applied it on the movie studio. Did that cause any pushback or difficulties with the producers or filmmakers in, in L.A.? Oh, sure. I mean, it's a di completely different mindset. The mindset of Hollywood tends to be to spend more money to make bigger films, to make them more attractive, to spend more money on special effects, to spend more money on talent. Um, that was the approach. And Ike was inside every single detail, challenging every detail of making the movie. And it led to a fair amount of friction with the studio eventually. And for example, when we made Iron Man, there was a scene in Iron Man. It's the scene in which Tony Stark is hijacked, in which his convoy of Humvees was attacked and uh, he was captured. And the original script called for, I think it was 10 Humvees. And Ike looked at that and said, why do we need 10 Humvees? That's too many. Cut the number of Humvees, it's too expensive. So we cut <laughs> it back, I think, to three. Avi Arad, Marvel's chief creative officer, who you met in the last episode, oversaw the development of Iron Man. And he heard a lot from Ike. When we made our first movie on our own money, Iron Man, he was freaking out. He was sending the accounting guys to see what's going on. Then I get a call. How come they have all this candy around the, the set? We pay them, they can buy their own candy. Ah, it was an education. For the record, Ike disputes the candy story, but he said he did believe the food catering on set was excessive. Ike's desire to spend as little as possible affected all aspects of production on Iron Man. So when the team in Los Angeles started hiring people to make the movie, they couldn't exactly go to the A-list. We were newbies, you know? It was We hadn't done a million pitches, but... I mean, thank God we didn't realize what we were pitching for <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, right? That's Art Markham, who was hired to write the Iron Man script with his writing partner, Matt Holloway. Matt said he knew Marvel Studios needed a hit. This had to succeed. Meaning, 
Iron Man or the Hulk both really needed to succeed, and Iron Man really needed to succeed because it was also the question of he doesn't seem like a second-tier character anymore, but it's like, who's Iron Man? For the uninitiated, Iron Man is the alter ego of Tony Stark, a billionaire businessman, playboy, and inventor. In the comics, he's kidnapped during the Vietnam War and forced to build weapons for the Viet Cong. While imprisoned, Stark builds a suit that lets him fly and shoot lasers. He uses it to escape and becomes a high-tech superhero. Tony Stark's not a teenage boy who gets bitten by a spider, right? He's a grown adult. You know, he's a genius, but he that genius has been used to do things that have hurt a lot of people. That's serious. You know, when, when we sort of dove into the source material and you sort of realize, like, my goodness, this, <laughs> this is a sort of alcoholic weapons manufacturer. What an amazing character. It so intrigued us, but when you say that, it sounds like a very serious adult movie, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like a kid's comic book movie. So I think there was fear. I mean, there was fear. <laughs> you know, like, is this going to work? Marvel hired John Favreau to direct. At the time, he wasn't exactly the first name that came to mind for big summer blockbusters. He had only three directing credits. His most famous was Elf, a Christmas comedy with Will Ferrell playing an overgrown man-child. Damn it! I'm in love! I'm in love! And I don't care who knows it! Elf did not scream action. And his latest release, Zathura, a science fiction adventure film, had been a flop. But Favreau had ideas on how to make Iron Man relatable and funny, just as Sam Raimi had done with Spider-Man. To play Iron Man, Marvel considered numerous actors, including Timothy Oliphant from Deadwood. But they kept returning to one name, Robert Downey Jr. He was an Oscar nominee, skilled at drama and comedy. But at the time, he was at a low point in his career. Downey had struggled for years with addiction and had served time in prison. And those weren't the only factors that made him risky. I asked Marvel's longtime casting director, Sarah Finn, about him. Downey was not an obvious choice for this because we saw this movie and I think everyone perceived it more in the action zone. Although he is an actor of the highest caliber. He wasn't known in the zone. I think he also wasn't at that time at a classic age where people would have looked to cast an action hero. And there were a lot of questions. Robert Downey Jr. was in his 40s, older than the average action star. But Sarah really wanted him. She thought he had charisma and was believable as the complicated Tony Stark. I suggested having screen tests, knowing that that might be a cut through because it can be a bit abstract, right? When you're casting, you're trying to imagine what somebody's going to be like in the part. You're taking that leap in your imagination. If you can see it in front of you, it becomes undeniable. Tell me about what you remember about his audition, about his arrival. Downey came in absolutely ready to go. I believe he was singing God, I Hope I Get It from Chorus Line <laughs> as he walked in the doors. Nice, nice. <laughs> and we were in a big soundstage. It's kind of cavernous, empty space. You can watch the screen test yourself on YouTube. Done. You're still Buckingham Palace. What do we got? <laughs> what, I got to break out the psyop? But he walked in and just really filled the space. 
And he was on fire. He was ready to go claim this part. There it is. There's a smile. It's okay. Yeah, so it's natural. Less, less muscles to smile. In that room, did you feel like, okay, this is it. It's right? Yes. Gotcha. Instantly. Everything was falling into place. But the screenwriters, Art and Matt, said the Iron Man team was nervous, including Favreau. John was sitting behind his desk, you know, and he was worried every single day. And he was like, we'll make $100 million, right? Right? <laughs> you know, like... With, and, and that was not false modesty. <laughs> that was fear. Like, that was a fear-based question. And I'm like, oh my God, this is way more tenuous than I thought. <laughs> so yes, there was absolutely nobody, from my experience, pointing to the fences saying, this thing's going to be amazing. It was like, I hope we can make it. I hope it makes $100 million. And I hope we all get to work in this town again when it's all said and done. Coming up, Iron Man heads to the box office. And Ike Perlmutter gets courted by a very surprising suitor. This episode is brought to you by Canva. It's time to ditch your old presentation programs at work and try Canva presentations instead. It'll help you create stunning slides in no time. No design experience needed. Just start with one of the designer-made templates or generate something in seconds with AI. Then polish it up and get ready to wow your audience. It's that easy. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Tap the banner to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. And this is, a, this is some footage, for, about four minutes of footage that was cut together just for Comic-Con. This was made for you guys and people who know who Iron Man is. That's Iron Man director John Favreau at the 2007 San Diego Comic-Con, giving a sneak peek of the movie to a big crowd. This is not about trying to get people to go see the movie who don't know who Tony Stark is. This is about comic book fans who want to see how we handle the material if we stay true to the books. Fans who had been skeptical about Marvel making its own movies were suddenly excited. This was the Iron Man they knew and loved from the comic books, a blend of action and comedy. In the movie, Robert Downey Jr. captured the character's struggles, charm, and snark. You've been called the Da Vinci of our time. What do you say to that? Absolutely ridiculous, I don't paint. And what do you say to your other nickname, the Merchant of Death? That's not bad. Iron Man, Marvel's first self-produced film, opened in May of 2008. Its premiere was such a big deal that Ike Perlmutter agreed to fly out from New York. But he didn't want to have to talk to the Hollywood crowd, so he wore a disguise, a trench coat, a hat, and a fake mustache, which, and I'm not making this up, he accidentally put on upside down. Critics loved Iron Man. And so did moviegoers. Iron Man turned to gold over the weekend with a $100 million take. 
the film had the 10th biggest opening of all time. The film grossed nearly $600 million. Its budget was less than $150 million. It made a lot of money. Things were changing inside Marvel. There was increasing tension between Avi Arad and David Maisel. Eventually, Avi left to become an independent producer. Soon after, David replaced him as chairman of Marvel Studios. David said Iron Man was so successful, even Ike Perlmutter was willing to spend a little money to celebrate. I remember um, calling Ike and saying, I thought we should get John Favreau and Robert Downey uh, presents, get them new cars. And he agreed. Wow. I think Favreau wanted a Mercedes, certain Mercedes, and where his wife thought he would like it in certain color. And uh, Robert wanted a Bentley <laughs> in a certain color. Because I remember when, I think it was the night we went to Mr. Chow's, we played a trick on John and we had the valet, the valet brought up the Mercedes. And then he was so happy. And then it was really funny because Robert was happy too. But then we could tell he's probably wondering like, where's my car, you know? And we made him wait a few days, um, but we brought it to his house one afternoon where I think he was taking a nap or something. And we parked in his driveway so that when he woke up, he saw his new car. And I, I think um, that spirit of fun, which I think a lot of people might be surprised that I supported that, but he did. The degree of Iron Man's success at the box office caught a lot of people at Marvel by surprise, including general counsel John Turritson. After Iron Man was released, we were stunned. Uh, at least we in New York were stunned by the success of the movie at the box office. And we said, wow, these movies are actually going to be popular, popular on their own and can make money on their own. Wow. And did you actually sell as many toys as you expected? You no, know, we didn't. It's interesting. We didn't because licensees were skeptical about Iron Man as a character. And it ended up after the movie came out and it was popular, those same licensees started chasing Iron Man because they didn't have enough product on the shelves. Marvel Studios was on top of the world. Well, almost on top. It was number two, actually, behind this movie, a much grittier take on the superhero genre. What do you propose? It's simple. We uh, kill the Batman. <laughs> the Dark Knight, the second film in Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, came out in July of 2008, two months after Iron Man. The DC Comics movie grossed $1 billion. It was the biggest film of the year. And it couldn't be more different than Iron Man. It wasn't witty and light. It was grounded and dealt with intellectual themes. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. The Dark Knight was nominated for eight Oscars and won two including Best Supporting Actor. And the Oscar goes to Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. Iron Man got two Oscar nominations for sound and visual effects. It didn't win either. Here's David Maisel on how he saw Marvel's competition with DC. I was afraid of DC, and their model was hiring Final Cut directors, and sometimes that works. You get a Chris Nolan movie, and sometimes it doesn't, right? David did not want to give too much power to individual filmmakers like Nolan. He had a different philosophy for Marvel. This was a team effort, and the producers was Marvel Studios and is Marvel Studios. 
And we needed directors and writers and talent that wanted to be part of a team and a culture. But handing over the keys to a Final Cut director, uh, I don't know how as a producer that is um, a fiscally or creatively responsible decision. Marvel Studios would give ultimate power to its executives, who also served as producers, like David. To compete with DC movies like The Dark Knight, Marvel would have to build on the success of Iron Man. David had an idea of how to do that. He decided to explore whether he could sell Marvel to the biggest company in Hollywood, Disney. It turned out Disney had already been thinking about Marvel. Tell me about the first time to either of your recollections that the idea of Marvel as a you know, company that Disney could buy came up. Marvel had been on Disney's radar, our radar screen for quite some time. That's Tom Staggs. He and his business partner, Kevin Mayer, are former top executives at Disney. We actually did a study, a strategy piece called Disney 2015, which in 2005 sounded very forward-looking, but it's a little odd now. And part of that was looking at what acquisitions would make sense for Disney, and Marvel was part of that equation. We put together some, I think, pretty compelling analysis as to how Marvel would be worth a lot more as part of Disney than it was as a standalone company. Although, interestingly enough, Marvel wasn't necessarily seen by everyone inside Disney as a natural fit at first. We saw it as being highly complimentary, and it took a little bit of doing with some of the folks to try to get people excited. But What was their objection or concern? I think it had more to do with the nature of the content. It was a little more action-oriented. You know, yeah, there's that. There's also there's the notion, which made sense a bit, why would you buy a comic book company just to get a bunch of characters? You can make up characters, you can do, or, or Disney. Why can't we just develop characters? Disney declined to comment. David, who used to work at Disney, approached its CEO, Bob Iger, in early 2009. I remember standing outside the Team Disney building. I brought in the Marvel Encyclopedia for Bob. So anyone who saw me walking into Team Disney that morning could have figured it out, but, um, you know, and, and made some money probably in the stock. The Marvel Encyclopedia had information on thousands of characters, proof that there was a lot more than Iron Man that Disney could mine. But one very important person didn't know what was going on yet. David hadn't told his boss, Ike Perlmutter, that he was having this meeting. After finding out Iger might be interested, David nervously dialed Ike up. He was standing in a parking lot outside Disney's executive building, which features huge statues of the seven dwarfs holding up the roof. I remember looking up the seven dwarfs and calling Ike and telling him about my meeting, and I thought there would be three answers. Um, either he'd say, you're fired for having that meeting without telling me. Two, he'd say, go back to work and finish up Iron Man 2. Or three, come to New York. And he said, come to New York. Come to New York, meaning come to Ike's office. Because Ike was not mad that David had approached Disney about a sale. Ike was intrigued. Soon, he and Iger had their first meeting in New York in the summer of 2009. John Turitson has a vivid memory of the moment. I remember, I remember it very clearly. Uh, Ike Perlmutter came, walked down the hall to my office and he said he was meeting with Bob Iger, that Bob Iger wanted to come to his office to meet with him and about possibly buying or doing a deal with Marvel. After the meeting was over, Ike walked down the hall to my office and he opened the door and he said, 
can you believe? He said, can you believe they're serious about maybe buying Marvel? And Ike had no interest before that time, no interest at all in selling Marvel or losing control of Marvel. He loved running Marvel by himself. But he said, I like this man. He said, I like him. I think I could work with him. Then that night, Bob Iger and his wife went to dinner with Ike Perlmutter and Ike Perlmutter's wife, and they continued the conversation to get comfortable. And Ike became very comfortable with Bob Iger. Was it also important to Ike that he would retain some level of control over Marvel? Yes, it was very important. Ike loved running Marvel. It was very important for him to stay in control and run Marvel. And so when we were negotiating a deal with Disney, we had an addendum to the uh, merger agreement. Um, it wasn't legally binding, but the basic idea was that Marvel would remain autonomous and that Ike Perlmutter would be able to control Marvel. Disney agreed to buy Marvel in August of 2009 for $4 billion. Ike Perlmutter received a combination of cash and Disney stock worth about $1.6 billion at the time. And he told us, Iger personally promised him that he would remain in charge of Marvel as part of Disney. Here are former Disney executives Tom Staggs and Kevin Mayer again. I remember, well, we announced it on a Monday, I think. And um, of course, their stock, and it was a, you know, 29 or 30% premium to their stock price. And their stock obviously shot up. Ours actually went down that day. We went down 2 or 3%. Oh, we were accused of overpaying yeah, and, dramatically. And I got, I got a few, I got more than a few calls actually. With, are you kidding me? With you know, if it's a comic book company and four billion, and you know, we reiterated our mantra and said we, we really think that there's real value here. And when you went, when the deal was closed with Mar with Ike and David, and was there some kind of celebration or meeting of the, everybody? Or it was a meeting, a big all hands meeting in the New York in the then New York offices. They've switched since then. Um, they, they remember the air conditioning wasn't working. It was really hot. It was, <laughs> we had to open the window. It was tough. It was a tough uh, you know meeting, but it was uh, it was fun. I, I went to some Marvel offices a few years ago. I was I was struck by given what a successful company they are. It was a very austere office. I would say. Ike's very austere and parsimonious. Even <laughs> he did yeah. not did not spend extra dollars at all. I mean, look. He did take it out of bankruptcy. He put the company on the footing that allowed it to be sold for $4 billion. So hats off to Ike. David Maisel left Marvel Studios after the Disney acquisition, over $20 million richer. The person who stepped into David's shoes was Kevin Feige. Feige had worked his way up at Marvel, first as a junior executive who carried Avi Arad's bags to meetings, then as a producer on Iron Man. Now, Feige was the head of the whole studio under Ike Perlmutter, and he was tasked with making Marvel's next batch of movies. With Disney's resources, Feige moved forward with a bold strategy that no studio had done before, to link all Marvel's movies into one connecting storyline, a cinematic universe. And I know that a lot of us, including Kevin, that was the goal, is can we manifest this crazy dream all the way to an Avengers movie, um, which seemed impossible at the moment, both technically and, you know, just seemed crazy. It was a strategy that would fuel superheroes' takeover of Hollywood. That's next time on With Great Power, out tomorrow. With Great Power is part of the journal which is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. 
I'm Ben Fritz, host and reporter. This episode was produced by Lisa Wang, with help from Alan Rodriguez-Espinoza, Matt Kwong, John Sanders, and Pierre Singy. The series is edited by Catherine Brewer and Annie Baxter. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka and Amelia Schoenbeck. Sound design and mixing by Griffin Tanner. The music in this episode is by Bobby Lord, Griffin Tanner, Peter Leonard, Audio Network, and Epidemic Sound. Our theme music is by So Wiley and remixed by Nathan Singapak. Special thanks to Maria Byrne, Kate Linebaugh, Jessica Mendoza, Sarah Platt, Sarah Rabel, Ethan Smith, Catherine Whalen, and Veronica Zaragovia. Thanks for listening. Check out episode three tomorrow. When did you sort of start to understand, oh, this is something, this is a cinematic universe. This is something different. Yeah, it was it was around the time that we were doing Cap and Thor. Kevin mentioned something about the Avengers. Okay. <laughs> that really blew my mind because these other films, again, weren't known characters. Captain America was not exactly cool at the time. Thor was not as widely known outside of the so hardcore fans. And so it seemed very gutsy to be planning an Avengers movie before we even knew how these two were going to be received.